The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. We have your Bibles with you this morning. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. If you've been uh, traveling with us through the Gospel of Luke, we've been at this for some time now. Uh, I suspect you'll find yourself realizing that we're in the home stretch now in my Bible. There's six more pages to the end of Luke. Now, I know you're thinking that means very little, um, but it does tell us that we are in the home stretch, making our way with Jesus to Jerusalem, to the cross, to the crucifixion, to the resurrection. As we make our way closer to that, we hear the words of Jesus and his words become more urgent and more intentional to his disciples as he understands with increasing clarity what is coming and what is imminent, and he is preparing himself and them for what is coming. So these things that he teaches in the home stretch here are critical and they're important. When you know your days are numbered and you know your opportunities are fewer, you, you don't mince words, you don't waste time, you say the things that are most important and that matter the most. And so it's not going to surprise us to, to feel a sense of intensity in the words of Christ as he gets closer to the cross. So in Luke chapter 18, we look at verses 1 through 8 this morning. So follow along as I read. Luke writes, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give the justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of God for us this morning. Last week, we, we sort of pulled out of our study of Luke's gospel and did a sort of a one-shot overview of the end times. We, we flew up to about 30,000 feet and we looked down over the scope of human history and we identified at least what we could about the end of time, about the second coming and the return of Christ, uh, the consummation of his kingdom. We identified the, the issues involved in that that are debatable. And then we really spent the bulk of our time zeroing in on the things that the Bible says about that event that are crystal clear, things for which we can stand with absolute certainty. And there are some things that are clear we found. We found that nobody's going to know when Christ is going to return and consummate the kingdom. We, we realized that people in general, when that happens, are going to be just living life oblivious that anything important is going to happen. Much like the days of Noah, when the flood came. Much like the days of Lot, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. 
people are just going to be doing their normal routines and Christ is going to return. And it's going to be sudden and people, most people are going to be oblivious. We saw that, that, that his return is going to divide relationships at the end of chapter 17. Jesus talked about this. He said there are going to be a man and a woman in the bed. And when Christ returns, there's going to be a division that takes place because one has placed their faith and trust in him and one has not. There are going to be people working in the same workspace. And it's going to be evident that one belongs to Christ and one does not when he returns. These things are clear. As we begin moving into chapter 18, it's important for us to pause and re remember that we're still dealing with the same context here. Jesus has not, in chapter 18, shifted, shifted his attention to a new subject to deal with sort of other matters. He's still talking about his return. And we know that because he circles back to it in verse 8 at the end of this section, and he talks about his return. What is he going to find when he comes back? So, this is the same context at the end of chapter 17 that we find at the beginning of chapter 18. It's important to point that out because as we read our English Bibles today, we have all these numbers that are in the text. We have chapter headings and verse markers and all of that. We have to remember that when these books were written, they didn't have numbers in the mix. They didn't have chapters and verses. It was a, a long written thing that extended as one long written piece. Those numbers and verses and chapters were added later on for, for you and I to be able to more uh, quickly uh, navigate the text of scripture and find our place so sometimes like here where we have a chapter break at the end of 17 and 18 it makes us sort of think that there's a new subject starting but here in this case it's not Jesus is still talking about his second coming he's still talking about the consummation of the kingdom he is still talking about his return and what he says here still relates in that context as I mentioned last week, Jesus' apostles, they, they, they did not understand the church age. They did not understand that Christ was going to come once and there was going to be a gap of time before he comes a second time. They had no sense that this was going to be a lengthy period in history where God was going to invite Gentiles into his kingdom. They had no sense that the gospel was going to, for centuries, and now at least 2,000 years down the road, millennia, the gospel was going to travel around the world and be brought to people who would otherwise not hear it. That the gospel was going to go out to, to people of every nation and every tribe and every tongue, and God was going to gather for himself a people from among the Gentiles that we call the church. And they believed from their perspective in history that Christ was going to die, he was going to be resurrected, and particularly after the resurrection, they had a sense that he was going to come back quickly, that he was going to come back most likely in their lifetime. That seems to be their thought process. But Jesus knows this is not the case. He knows it's not the case, and he knows that as time wears on and he doesn't return as quickly as they thought, there's going to be a temptation for them to lose heart. There's going to be a temptation that they might become discouraged and they might begin to doubt his return. And so Jesus taught them things like what we find in chapter 18 as a means to combat that discouragement, as a means to maintain their spiritual vitality in that delayed period of time where Christ is not returning in the way that they expected and in the time frame that they expected. So today, you and I find ourselves in that same intervening time period. We find ourselves in the exact epic of history that the apostles found themselves in this period of time between the first and the second coming of Christ. We live in a world during that same thing. 
And much like them, we have no idea when he's going to return. We don't know if it's going to be next week or next month in our lifetime or in our children's lifetime or in our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren's lifetime. We don't have a sense for these things, and Christ has made it clear that we won't and cannot know that. What we do know is that we live in a world where evil and injustice continue to dominate the world landscape. We know that we live, particularly in our culture, in a culture where the church of Jesus Christ, that is the true and legitimate church of Jesus Christ, is in decline. And the nuns, that is those who identify with no particular faith at all, are on the rise. We know that we live in a culture where it's becoming increasingly difficult to publicly hold to a biblical worldview. We live in a culture where it's becoming uh, very difficult and increasingly difficult to publicly embrace a biblical moral ethic. We know that we're living in a culture where it's becoming increasingly difficult to be open about our faith, to evangelize the lost, to speak the truth into the lies and destructive delusions that people are wanting to embrace. It's becoming harder. It's becoming more difficult. We are living in what some theologians refer to as the already, not yet. Meaning that Christ has already come the first time. He's been crucified and he's been resurrected. He's come to, as we talked about on Easter, establish and inaugurate his kingdom. But he has not yet returned to consummate the kingdom in full. So we're stuck in this period of the already, but the not yet. The kingdom has begun, but the kingdom isn't consummated. We're in between those moments in history. So the relevant question for his apostles and the relevant question for people like us is how are we supposed to live during this already not yet period? How is it that we're to orient our lives in this season as we await Christ's return? Or another way of saying that is how should his return, the imminence of it, affect how we live and conduct ourselves in the world? It is to that end that this text helps us. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about how we should conduct ourselves in the already not yet. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 23, Paul writes, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we do what? We wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. What is Paul saying? We're Christians. We're waiting eagerly for that return of Christ when we will be fully adopted as sons. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, So you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this real sense that the people of God are to be people who are waiting for the Lord's return. Not people who are oblivious to it, not people for whom this is in the back of their minds or not even anywhere in their thought process, but people who in the front of their minds realize Christ is returning and we are eagerly waiting for that reality to come to bear. In fact, praying for it. In Jude, verse 21 of chapter 1, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord. And if you were to flip all the way to the end of the New Testament, really the New Testament ends at the end of Revelation chapter 22 with the last prayer in the Bible. And the last prayer of the Bible simply tells us this. 
he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming. And how does it end? Amen. Say it with me. Come, Lord Jesus. It's the last prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. A prayer for Christ to come and to return. As we think about where the world is heading, where the world has come from, where our culture is going, that should be the prayer of God's people. Come, Lord Jesus. When we see injustice and we see evil dominating the landscape, our reflective response should be, come, Lord Jesus, make these things right. Our hope isn't in the next president. Our hope isn't in a politician. Our hope isn't in some election or law. Our hope is only to be found in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who will make it all right. Nobody else will do that. Only at his coming will this take place. So here in Luke 18, Jesus is reminding us, he's reminding us that we're to be the kind of people who are persistently praying for his return. One of the ways that we keep this reality of his return in the front of our minds is that we make it a regular part of how we pray. We're praying for his return. We're praying as a part of our normal routine, Christ, come back and make these things right. In the face of evil and justice, Lord, return. Even though it's been a long time, we don't lose heart in our praying. Even though we don't know when it's going to happen, and it might be a long time, we don't give up praying for the return of Christ. Because it is in that that our hope is found. Now, when we look at our text this morning, this parable that Jesus teaches in chapter 18, if you've been walking with us for some time, in particular if you were walking with us last July, you might remember that we looked in chapter 11 at a very similar kind of parable. It was a parable about uh, a, a persistent man who, you may recall, had a, a, a friend, a, a surprise guest show up at midnight. I mean, that's terrible, right? When you have guests show up at midnight, you don't know they're coming. It was culturally uh, important to prepare a meal for somebody when they came and traveled. They didn't have McDonald's drive through to go through, so they're hungry when they get there. You should have food, prepare for that. But this person has a guest show up at midnight. He doesn't have any bread. The 24-hour Walmart isn't open. What are you going to do? Hey, well, what this guy does in chapter 11, Jesus tells us in the parable, is that he goes to his neighbor who he knows has some supplies, and he starts banging on the door. Ben and Audrey are my neighbors. They're around the corner. This could happen. Could have a, somebody show up at midnight. I'm going to go bang on Ben and Audrey's door. I'm out of food. You've got to help me out. Hopefully, Ben and Audrey will be more gracious than the man in that parable in chapter 11 who said, hey, get lost. I'm asleep. My family's asleep. You're disturbing my old house, my whole household. Just go away and come back in the morning. But the guy desperately bangs on the door until the guy gets out of bed, disturbs the household, comes to the door, and gives him what he needs. He persistently knocks. He persistently keeps banging and asking for the help. And we're told in chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, this, Jesus said, I tell you, though he doesn't give up, uh, and give him anything because he's a friend, yet because of his impudence, that is because he didn't give up, because he stayed at it, his persistence, he'll rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it'll be open to you. The point of that particular parable was to encourage God's people to pray with confidence and to pray persistently, even if we don't see the results immediately. We're to, we're to not give up. We're to keep going and keep praying. Not because... God is like that neighbor, not because God doesn't want to get out of bed and help us in the middle of the night, but we're to continue to uh, pray and seek and knock specifically because God is the opposite of all that. 
because God is gracious and he's loving and he's naturally inclined to our needs and he's the kind of God who hears and listens and answers so we don't give up even if we don't see results immediately. When we look at this parable in chapter 18, there are a lot of similarities and yet there's a difference. In both of these parables, there's somebody who is desperately in need. Are we in agreement? There's somebody who needs something that they don't have. In both of these parables, there's somebody else who has what's needed, but's reluctant initially to give it. In both of these parables, persistence on the part of the desperate individual is a key factor. In both of these parables, eventually, reluctantly, the other person does what they should have done all along. So in the first parable, persistence was the main issue. It was really the only issue. But here in this context, we're dealing with persistence, but it's couched within this context of praying about the return of Christ. While, while persistence in prayer is still the issue, what's in view in particular is praying persistently about Christ's return. So keep that in mind as we're working through this. Persistence is still a key to prayer, but we're not talking here necessarily in general, though it does apply in general. We're talking specifically, though, about Christ's return. And so in verse 1, he gives us to us, right? He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Sometimes when Jesus tells a parable, we have to figure out what it's about. In this one, he tells us right at the outset specifically what it's about. There are two things in this parable that he wants to encourage you and me to do. They're pretty easy to identify, right? The first one is to always pray. He wants us, he's telling the story so that we might always pray. That's the first thing. Now, what is he talking about when he says always pray? I mean, obviously we don't live our lives with our eyes closed, uttering prayers under our breath the whole day. Hopefully you have your eyes open most of the day doing what you're doing. He's not talking about some continuous formal kind of prayer service that we're involved in. He's not talking about every five minutes that we stop over doing, hit our knees, and go through some sort of prayer ritual. He's not talking about continuous prayer. What he's talking about is consistent, persistent type of praying. It's not the endless repetition of words. It's not painfully long prayer sessions. He's saying that God's people ought to be people who are always about prayer. That is to say they're living their lives with an upward sort of bent all day long. They're living in relationship with God in such a way that their life is being lived prayerfully all throughout their day. That prayer and their communication and relationship with God is a regular part of the experience of their day, whatever's going on in their day. All throughout the day, they're communicating with him. They're thanking him for blessings that come in the day. They're seeking his wisdom as they're making decisions. They're confessing sin in the moments when sin comes to their attention and they blow it. They're asking for his help when tasks are set before them that they need to accomplish. It's not like some formal prayer that's going on all day long. It's just living life under the recognition that God is involved in every piece of my life. And if I want to successfully represent him in the world and live in a way that reflects godliness in my life, that there's a relationship that's going on in my day where I'm prayerfully recognizing he's involved in all of this and that I'm not on my own and that I can't manage things on my own. So when life is stressful, I'm praying, God, help me with this. When there's a decision to be made, Lord, I don't know what I need to do. Help me with this decision. When I'm walking into a business meeting, Lord, there's people here. I don't know what's coming. Give me the words to say and give me the ability to reflect well on you in this meeting. When there's needs, Lord, I don't have what I need. I need you to help me. When there's suffering, Lord, I'm hurting. Can you help me? 
It's that kind of praying, that, that regular sort of praying in our life where we're living life prayerfully. Warren Wearsby says it this way, and I thought it was very eloquent. He says this idea of always praying, it means to make prayer as natural to us as our regular breathing. Unless we're sick or smothering, we rarely think about breathing. We just do it. Likewise, with prayer, it should be the natural habit of our lives, the atmosphere in which we constantly live. Prayer, he says, is much more than words of our lips or the words of our lips. It's the desires of our heart. And our hearts are constantly desiring before him, even if we never speak a word. So to pray without ceasing means to have such holy desires in our hearts and the will of God that we're constantly in loving communion with the Father, petitioning him for his blessings. Do you see that? It's a different sort of a concept. It was very different for the apostles who were hearing Jesus say, you ought to always pray. Because they were taught in the context of Judaism of their day, uh, the rabbis taught that you were to pray three times a day, no more than three times a day. Any more than three times a day was tedious to you and tedious to God. God's going to get sick of hearing from you. Just limit it to three, will you? He's got a lot of people, you know? Imagine if all those people were praying all day long. Well, how is he going to manage? Jesus says it's ridiculous. God's people are always be the kind of people who pray. Prayer is to be infused into their life as a part of their life, just like breathing is a part of their life. So that's the first thing. We're to always pray. The story is meant to encourage people to always pray. And it's meant to do a second thing, to help them not lose heart in their praying. To not lose heart. To not lose confidence that he's listening and that he's answering. To not get discouraged and to quit. And you and I can, if we're just being honest about this, we can admit there are times when prayerfulness comes easily to us, right? There are seasons of life where it's easy to be prayerful and to be praying. Moments of crisis. Let something go south in your life, some crisis crop up in your life, and all of a sudden, prayer is pretty easy, isn't it? I think of seasons when you're in great need, when there's something that's missing in life and you need it desperately. It's easy to be prayerful and to pray. When you realize you don't have the resources, and God does, and you need him to provide for you, you pray. Prayerfulness is easy when we're in deep suffering, sometimes, when we're hurting, and we can't find relief anywhere else. We turn our gaze to the Lord in prayer, and it comes to us in those moments to be prayerful. But if you and I are being honest, we would also admit that there are a lot of times in our lives when it's easy to lose heart and to stop praying, where prayer becomes absent from the entire landscape of our Christian life altogether. There are seasons for us when God feels distant. We don't feel like he's hearing and we don't feel like he's listening. He's certainly not answering in the way that we're asking. And we can lose heart. There are times when God doesn't answer immediately and we feel desperately like we need something immediately. And because of the delay between when we ask and when he answers, we lose heart and we give up and we quit praying. Sometimes God just doesn't answer the way that we want him to answer. And when he doesn't answer in the way that we want him to answer, we can lose heart. We sometimes just lose heart because we're too busy and we're too hurried in our lives. And prayer just gets squeezed out altogether. Well, Jesus knows that these men, after his death and resurrection, are going to have all of those temptations. He's going to have all of those experiences. He's preparing them for that very moment. He knows that his return is not going to come quickly enough for them, and they're going to be tempted to lose heart and to quit praying for his return. 
And he knows the same temptation will find its way into your life and mine. So he tells a story to help us. It's a very simple story to understand too, isn't it? It's not hard. It's, it's really easy for us to envision this story playing out as Jesus tells us all about it. There's two main characters in the story. We're introduced to a judge and a widow. That's it. A judge and a widow. We're told something about both of them. The judge, we're told pretty clearly, we see, at least in the context of the story, is wicked, he's selfish, he's ungodly, and he's unjust. Fantastic judge, right? Exactly the kind of judge you want to go to court and stand before. He's a crooked, corrupt judge. The context here is a civil court. It's not a criminal court. There's a civil problem that needs to be dealt with. This is the person who's been appointed to deal with the problem, and he is a problem in and of himself. We find out pretty immediately by his own lips that he lacks the two things necessary to be a righteous judge, right? <laughs> he says right out of the chute, I don't respect God, and I don't respect men. Like, those are the two critical ingredients to being a righteous judge. You have to have a healthy respect for God and for holiness and for righteousness and for doing what is right and pleasing and honorable before God. And you have to have a, a, a genuine compassion and concern for people who are in need. Like, if you're missing one of those two things, it's a problem in the courthouse. If you're missing both of them, it's devastating. And this judge was missing both had no interest in godliness, he had no interest in righteousness, and he had no compassion and respect for people. He didn't see himself as accountable to anybody, not to God and not to people. He didn't care anything about the first commandment, and he didn't care anything else about the second commandment either. You could say it that way. He only acted in his own self-interest. That was the only thing that motivated him. What was going to benefit him? So he's shameless, he's selfish, and this would have been a very familiar concept to Jesus' listeners at the time. Throughout Israel's history, they'd been dealing with this problem over and over and over again. Corrupt judges. You could read the prophets in the Old Testament, and you'll see God speaking through the prophets quite frequently, condemning God's people, and in particular, corrupt judges for the things that they were doing to the people. It was a problem. You can look at like Isaiah chapter 5, verse 22, a good example of this where God blasts Israel for this. He says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. It's not just their drinking that's the problem, though. These are people who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. God issues a woe against people who do that kind of thing. Multiple examples of this in the Old Testament. And that's the kind of person that we're dealing with here that Jesus sets up in this parable, a judge. And then there's this widowed woman. Well, she's everything that this man is not. She's poor, she's helpless, and she's desperate. That's what we can see about her life, right? In that culture, widows and orphans were some of the most vulnerable people in the culture. They were very easily taken advantage of. There was no sort of social net like we have in our culture. There was no social security. There was no Medicaid and Medicare. There was no sort of pro bono attorney that, that, that could be given to somebody who couldn't afford it to be able to represent them in court. If you didn't have a, a husband, if you didn't have a son who could stand up and defend you as a woman, you were helpless and you were easily taken advantage of. The Bible is very... It's very compassionate to this issue in both the Old and the New Testament. And it's very direct that God's people are responsible for standing up for the orphan and the widow. 
for making sure that people who are the most vulnerable like that are cared for and not taken advantage of and have their needs met. We see in Exodus 22 an example of that from the Old Testament. Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Listen, if you think God plays around with words and makes empty threats and you can ignore that, but if you think God is a God who keeps his word, then you better understand what he says about this. When you take advantage of a widow or an orphan, the sword of the Lord is coming for your head. And your wife is going to become a widow, and your children are going to become orphans. That's what God says is going to happen if you act like this judge. God cares about vulnerable and helpless people deeply, and God's people ought to care about them as well. But it's clear here in the context of this parable that this woman has nobody in her life that is caring for her and standing up for her, at least not any men who can help her. Women only presented themselves in a courtroom setting like this when there was no man in their life to help them and stand up for them. So that's what we have here in this scenario. A woman who is a widow, she's alone, she's desperate, she's powerless, she's helpless, and somebody's taking advantage of her. Somebody in some way has taken advantage of her, and this, the consequences of it have been very significant. This is not a small thing. This is not small claims court. This woman is desperate. Something has been taken that has put her at a disadvantage, and she's desperate for it to be made right. It's a very common scenario in the first century. You have wealthy, deceptive people who would trump up debts against a widow in order to be able to put a lien against her property and take advantage of her. Her only resource in such a situation would be to find the protection from a judge. But she, in this case, comes to find that. But the problem is the judges were often corrupt and easily bought off. So based on the Old Testament teaching, this judge was obligated to help this woman on at least a legal level, but even more than that, on a moral, spiritual level, he should have stepped in and helped this woman make right what was done wrong. But unfortunately, we see in the story, he couldn't care less, right? He absolutely could not care less. He has no intention of helping her. He has no compassion for her. He's blowing her off. So what does she do? She does the only thing she could do. And you've got to love this widow. She's got guts, doesn't she? What does she do? She does the only thing that she can do. She goes to him and she pleads for justice. She kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. Initially, he blows her off. It says here, uh, for a while he refused. Why did he refuse? Because there was nothing in it for him. He doesn't care about the law of God. He doesn't care about her needs. It, it, it was politically, socially, financially advantageous for him to ignore her. But the problem is she doesn't give up. She kept coming and kept saying to him, give me justice against my adversary. I mean, she's just relentless. She refuses to give up day after day after day, refuses to accept no for the answer. She has nothing to lose, so every day she just keeps coming back. I mean, like a tiger, she just doesn't let go. Now, this is a strategy that's mastered by all children everywhere, right? Like, my son has mastered that strategy. He's better at hiding it now, but when he was younger, he was mastered that strategy. It's like, if I could just keep coming at different angles over time, I'm going to wear him down. 
Eventually, I'm going to catch him in the right moment, in the right mood. If that doesn't work, I'll go to mom, and we'll try it on her. Right? Just keep coming and keep coming until eventually you wear him down. Well, in this case, for the widow, the strategy works. She wears him down. We find later his response is this. He says, I'm going to give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. (laughs) This is great. This is fantastic, isn't it? Like this guy has no change of heart. He has no moral compassion that wells up in him and decides to help the poor widow, right? I mean, there's nothing, there's no, no sudden spiritual awakening. He's not moved with compassion like Jesus. He just says, this woman's driving me nuts. I got to help her or she's never going to leave me alone. He just does not until he can't take it anymore. The language is really vivid. This word here that he says, translated, beat me down. It's a boxing term that pictures swollen and bruised face of a person. This woman is like, is like a boxer who's in the ring, just constantly pelting the other person with all these little body blows until they finally just cannot take it anymore. This guy is saying, this woman is beating me to death with her incessant coming. And she's never going to let go. So I'm going to give her what she needs. She's interrupting my life. She's exhausting me. She's embarrassing me by continually coming every day. So not because it's right, not because it's just, he just gives her justice to get rid of her. It's in his own selfish interest to get rid of this lady. So he does what's right reluctantly. It's kind of a funny story if you imagine it in your mind. I don't know what it looks like to you, but it looks funny to me. Maybe it doesn't look funny to you. But I can just see this woman coming back every day and just not giving up. And this man every day getting a little madder and a little madder and a little more exasperated until he finally says, forget it, I'm just doing it. I don't want to do the right thing, but I'm doing it anyway. And you say, well, what, what does any of this have to do with praying about Jesus' return? And what is this, how does this help us to encourage us to pray always and to not lose heart? Well, we get to verse 6 and 7, and we're, we're sort of brought to that. The Lord said, hear what the righteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So what's the point of the story? Is God like the judge in this story? Is God selfish? Is he unjust? Is he merciless? Is he reluctant to help his people? Is that the point, that God's like the judge? All God's people said, no, that's not the point of the story. Thank you. Now I know you're awake. Is he the kind of God that has to be begged and cajoled and worn down by the prayers of his people in order to respond? Is that the point, that we're to just beg and cajole God and wear him down until he finally reluctantly does for us what we're asking? Is that the point of the story? And all God's people said, no, that is not the kind of God that we serve. Of course not. It's not what Jesus is teaching here. That's what pagan prayer is like. That's what pagan prayer is like. For, all, for basically every false religion, prayer is simply a transaction where an individual attempts to bend the will of God to do what they want him to do. And so they bargain and beg and bribe and pr- pr- you know, try to prove oneself worthy in order to get the deity to do what they want. It's very transactional like that. That's not what prayer is like to the one true living God. We don't have to beg him. We don't have to cajole him. We don't have to manipulate him to do for us what we want done. Trick Swindoll says this. He says, the God of the Bible can't be bribed or manipulated. He needs nothing, so we have nothing to offer that might convince him to do what we want. He knows our hearts, so there's no use trying to inform him or appear worthy of his favor. He's completely sovereign, so he will not abandon his agenda to serve ours. Therefore, prayer before God is not a manipulation. 
That's a necessary part of a relationship. What's the point of the story? The point of the story is that God is absolutely nothing like the judge in the story. In fact, he is the opposite. He is by nature loving and merciful. He's by nature just and righteous. He is by nature one who has promised that vengeance is his and that he will repay injustice in the end. He is a God who's told us over and over and over again to come to him because he's anxious to hear and he's anxious and inclined to respond to the prayers of his people. What Jesus is saying by the story is, look, if even that kind of a man, like that judge, if even that kind of person is able to is, is going to be responding to persistent cajoling like that, how much more can God's people have confidence that their God, who is the opposite of all of those things, will respond with righteousness and justice and concern for their needs? God's people don't have to beg and cajole. God's people don't have to manipulate him. He's already inclined to answer and to work for our good. We don't pray persistently because we need to beg him to do what he doesn't want to do. That's not the point. He asks two rhetorical questions here in this. He says, will, will, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Another way to render that is, will not God absolutely bring about justice to his chosen ones? Do you not understand that God is going to bring justice? He is going to bring justice in the lives of his people in particular, and he's going to bring justice to the world. We sometimes pray for that immediately, and sometimes God grants that immediately. But what we can say for sure is that at the return of Christ, justice will reign and justice will rule. All wrongs are going to be made right, and God's righteous ones will be exalted. That is going to happen. And so as we pray regularly for the return of Christ, that is what we're praying for. Lord, we live in an evil, fallen world where everything's broken and injustice reigns and evil seems to win the day. We need you to return and bring justice where there's injustice and make right all the stuff that's gone wrong. We ought always to pray like that and never lose heart because we know he's going to answer that prayer. He is going to return. Absolutely certain that this will happen. There is a delay. Why is there a delay? Why, does, why doesn't he just ex execute divine justice right now? Why does he allow evil to run rampant in the world for this season and for good people to suffer and struggle, for Christians to be martyred all around the world? Why does he allow these things? Well, the answer is because God is patiently extending the gospel to the world. He is still patiently giving men and women the opportunity to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, to repent, and trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and come to faith in him. God's patience is the reason for the delay. God's patience and his desire that more men and women would hear the gospel and be brought into the kingdom is the purpose for the delay. And so while we wait for the return of Christ, we are waiting not because God is absent and not because God is unconcerned and not because he's indifferent and apathetic. It's in fact the opposite because God is listening and he's patiently giving time for people to repent and believe. And he is then going to answer every one of those prayers for justice at the return of Christ. We persist in prayer because he's merciful and because he's just and he's wise and he's loving. We persist in prayer for Jesus' return in spite of a lengthy delay. 
Because you and I live in a world where Christ is regularly and openly dishonored. We live in a world where the word of God is denied and rejected and ridiculed. We live in a world where God's people are often persecuted, rejected, and in many places martyred. It should be the longing of the heart of every believer that Christ return and put an end to all this and make it right. That he bring full and complete justice to the world that desperately needs it. Well, he ends this by saying this. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He ends this with a question about his coming. The issue isn't, is Jesus going to return? He is. The question is, what is he going to find when he returns? In particular, what is he going to find among his people when he returns? Will he find people who are faithful? Will he find his people living faithfully? Will he find them praying faithfully? Will he find them longing for his return? Will he find a people who are ready and waiting for him to come? I mentioned this last week, and we don't have time this morning to explore it, but look to Matthew 24, the end of 24, and the beginning of 25. Jesus tells two parables there in relation to this. He tells a story that reminds us all that we should be constantly thinking about, praying about, ready for the return of Christ, because Jesus is going to come at a time perhaps earlier than we expect. We can't sit around and wait thinking we're going to get all our affairs ready kind of toward the end when it's getting close in order for him to be ready when he gets there. We're to live regularly, ready for his return, praying for his return, living faithfully so that at any moment when he comes, he finds us faithful. A lot of people are going to not live that way. They're going to think they can wait right up until the end and Christ is going to return sooner than they thought and they're going to get caught and it's going to be too late. And then in chapter 25, he tells a, a parable that reminds us Christ might delay his return a little longer than expected. And there's a temptation in that as well. The point is, for you and I, to examine ourselves and ask this question, are we living our lives faithfully in such a way that if Christ were to return right now, he would find us ready for his return and celebrating that he's come to exalt his people and to judge the world in justice. That he's come to make everything right that's gone wrong. That he's come to take his people to spend eternity with him in heaven. Would he find his people faithfully praying toward that end? That is what he wants of his people from this text. It's what he wanted his disciples to do. To always be praying. Not just in general, but always to be praying in particular that he would return. Come Lord Jesus, make all of this right. That that would be a, a personal part of their prayer life so that there's always in their mind this reality Christ is coming I'm not to fall in love with this world I'm not to be obsessed with the things of the world I'm not to, too, to get too upset about the things that are happening in the world because the world is temporary and Christ is coming back to fix everything that is broken when we lose sight of the return of Christ and we stop praying for the return of Christ then we get consumed with the stuff of the world and we become angry and we become indignant we become obsessed with things that don't matter. And we begin to look in all the wrong places for solutions to problems only Christ can fix. So what about you this morning, Christian? How's your prayer life? I think prayer is the one part of the Christian discipline that is the easiest to neglect, isn't it? It's the easiest to neglect because nobody's monitoring it in your life and mine. I don't have any idea if you're praying or you're not. You don't have any idea if I'm praying or I'm not. Apart from the way we live, somewhat you could maybe draw a connection there Jesus tells a story that we might always pray 
in particular for his return. And that we might not give up, lose heart, and quit doing that. I want to encourage you this morning as we bow our heads and pray, and you think about how this applies to your life, to ask the question, just, just this moment, do a quick self-evaluation about your prayer life. Could it be said of you that you're always praying? Not always having some formal prayer session, but you're living prayerfully throughout the day with a mindfulness that Christ is there and that he's involved in the details of your life and that there's a relationship piece of that that looks like prayer going on inside your heart and your life. And then in particular, this idea of the return of Christ and his second coming, is it an active part of what you pray for and what you long for and what you're eagerly waiting for? If not, this would be a great time to repent of that and to ask God by his spirit to help you in this area to be faithful. Lord, we recognize that we don't pray enough. I don't know everybody in this room or their spiritual habits, but I can say of myself and I can say with a high level of certainty of all my friends that have gathered here that we don't pray enough. We live in our own strength too much. We live by our own power too much. We rely on our own resources too much. We love this world too much and the things of this world too much. We easily forget that we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom and that you've made us to live forever with you. We easily forget that you're going to come back and make all things right that are wrong. We mistakenly believe we need to take justice into our own hands, that we need to be angry and vigilant with people and try to make things right in our own strength. We forget that that's your job. And so we need you, Lord, to help us this morning in this area of prayer to make this the reality of our lives, that we're people who are always about prayer. And we need you to help us not to lose heart in that because it's so easy for us to lose heart. And in particular, Lord, encourage us, even this week, to make praying about your return a major part of how we pray. Lord Jesus, come. Make everything right that's wrong. Save us from sin. Save us from the internal battle that we deal with every week of trying to live righteously and fighting against our flesh. Save us from this evil world that's degenerating all around us. Bring justice that's true and right to the world. Bring us home to your kingdom that we might spend forever with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.